I was blown away that the first man to ever cross the Pacific was an Afro-Portuguese man, a mulatto, in the parlance of the day. I also learned that he had been secretly condemned to death, and I found that is quite fascinating, and it's quite revealing of the, the harsh dealings and dealings of that era of early exploration. The story of how European explorers crossed the Atlantic has been well documented, but the push to discover a round-trip route across the Pacific from what is now Mexico to Asia is less well-known. That is, until now. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Acclaimed historian and UC Davis professor Andres Resendez has researched and written a riveting account of the first expedition to accomplish that, launching an era of global trade with the Far East. In Conquering the Pacific, an unknown mariner, and the final great voyage of the Age of Discovery, he tells how it starts with a secret mission and includes a mutiny, a shipwreck, and an African-Portuguese navigator whose story was almost lost to history. Andres, thanks for coming on to The Backdrop. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start with why trying to find this round-trip route was so important. Right. So basically, everybody knows that Magellan, in the course of his famous circumnavigation voyage, was the first European to go from the Americas to Asia in one swoop. And that is true. And in the aftermath of that pioneering voyage, the Spanish crown wanted to tap into the enormous riches of the Far East. And what it needed to do was to find a way to get back once uh, Spanish ships were in Asia, to find a way back to America, to start trading from its American colonies directly to Asia and thus compete with Portugal, which at the time was the main rival and was trading directly with Asia, but by the long way around the world, around Africa, India, and into into the Far East. Right. And so the challenge was um, not so much going from the Americas to Asia, but finding that way to come back. That's what the hard part was. Exactly. Because of the way the dominant winds and currents go right around the north-south, the latitude, the north-south distance of the coast of Mexico, it was a straight shot all the way to the Philippines with favorable currents and winds. But returning required finding out the whereabouts of the gyre, these enormous circle of winds and currents that uh, rotates regularly uh, in the North Pacific. And so it required them to go far north from the Philippines to around the level of what is now the northernmost islands in uh, in Japan or the coast of Oregon or even Washington State and find that patch of the ocean, of the enormous Pacific Ocean, where the uh, conditions were favorable for a return. Mm-hmm. And the stakes were high, right? The stakes for this kind of, this is almost like a space race back in the 1500s in a way, right? Spain versus Portugal, they're kind of rivals. And so there's economics involved. There's geopolitical strategic issues involved. Absolutely. I mean, these are two neighboring kingdoms and the uh, the foremost uh, maritime powers at the time. And basically, they divided the world between themselves and they drew a line uh, in the uh, Atlantic from pole to pole. Um, and so uh, Portugal got everything that was to the right of the line. <laughs> and by that, uh, it got all the coast of Africa and everything to the right of that. So Africa, India, and Spain got the rest, which is everything to the left of the line, <laughs> which was uh, the rest of the Americas and the Pacific Ocean. And so Spain needed to find that 
practicable route back from the from the Pacific coast. Right. So now so the Spanish king decides he wants to find a way to make it work. So so how does the plan play out? Well, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, in the aftermath of Magellan, the Spanish monarchy embarked on an all-out quest to try to find these return, these elusive return, or vuelta, as it was called in Spanish. Um, and so to that effect, uh, they sent no less than seven voyages, either from Spain or from the coast of the Americas, to try to do just that. And all those seven voyages ended up in disaster. Mm. They were either vanquished by the enormous distances or they were uh, or they were unable to simply unable to return. Uh, they succumbed to attacks from native islanders in the Pacific islands, etc. So this expedition that concerns us here was the eighth and uh, the most elaborate, uh, where money was no object for the Spanish crown. Uh, it involved the most accomplished pilots of the era. It uh, involved building the largest ships ever built in the Americas up to that time. So no, no expenses spared. And as you pointed out in your fine introduction, Spain undertook all of these for seven years, trying to keep it secret from Portugal in order to keep them in the dark about what they were doing. <laughs> so now we have this eighth attempt to do it. And how do they keep it secret from Portugal? And and I guess this is, it basically launches from the West coast of the Americas of, of what is now Mexico. Back then, I guess Spain called it New Spain. How did they try to accomplish this? Two ways. Uh, first of all, the Spanish monarchy uh, consulted only a few people. So the actual, the order came from the Spanish king directly. But the person in charge of actually putting together the venture was the king's representative in Mexico, the viceroy of Mexico. And he was the one who consulted with different map makers and pilots and, uh, you know, people who had sailed through the Pacific and the king himself, we know, reprimanded, uh, got angry at the vice at his viceroy for communicating the plan to so many people because the king was very, uh, very aware that word might leak to Portugal. So we know that. So they were trying to limit the number of people who knew about the secret voyage. Number one, and number two, instead of departing out of Acapulco, which was the most established port in the western coast of Mexico they decided to depart from a dilapidated harbor far to the north of Acapulco named Navidad or, you know, Christmas, which is, remains a teeny tiny uh, tourist town in, uh, in Mexico today. And that's where the, these gargantuan uh, galleons were built and people gathered in order to get ready for this uh, extraordinary voyage. It's pretty amazing. And so they put together these teams. How many ships do they send out and who do they bring together to, to go on this expedition? So the, the fleet consisted of four ships, two that were enormous. Uh, and just to give you a sense, Columbus's largest ship uh, in the voyage of discovery was no more than 80 tons of burden. Uh, or Magellan's largest ship was probably 120. This, the, the largest two here were 550 hmm. and over 400. Uh, so, you know, three or four times larger than the largest ships of Discovery, just to give you a sense of the scope. Wow. And so four ships, two of them very large, two of them uh, smaller, uh, you know, 80 tons and 40 tons. 
And of course, the problem was to find the best pilots possible. And that's where our crew comes into being. So the king, in collaboration with his viceroy, looked far and wide through the enormous you know, empire and also even contracted pilots from abroad. There was a, a Frenchman, a mysterious Frenchman. There was a man probably of Venetian descent, as well as these Afro-Portuguese pilot who was passing as a Spaniard and uh, had a very unlikely story uh, be, and ended up being the protagonist of these voyage. Yeah. So tell us about, this is your speaking of uh, Lope Martin. Tell us about his story. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. So Lope Martin, we know that he hailed from southern Portugal in a region that is now known as the Algarve which at the time was probably the preeminent maritime region in the world. So that is where voyages of exploration from both Portugal and Spain departed from. And so we know that Lope Martin, as a, as a youngster, as a 10-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy, must have cut his teeth aboard some of those ships carrying sacks of flour or you know, climbing up to the top of the mast, etc. Uh, we know that he's described as a free mulatto, that is, he was a man of color, and his parents were, had been, uh, or no, we don't know if his parents or grandparents or somebody, the forebears, uh, must have been uh, slaves, uh, people from, uh, from Western Africa brought into the town of Lagos, which is where he was from. But he himself was a, a free man, but nonetheless, a, a free man uh, or a free boy but in such dire situation that he was faced to uh, go into the life of the sea, which was a harsh, a very harsh, very uncertain, very difficult, uh, risky life at the time. So, so that's the the background of our of our hero. But what is really most extraordinary, what really caught my attention from the very beginning about this story, is that he persevered. He continued to climb through the ladder, becoming a pilot at the time had become a very technical uh, enterprise in the middle of the 16th century. It was called the art of navigation, and it had become less an art and more of a science because it required knowledge in mathematics, it required knowledge in cartography, and it required mastering a series of techniques in order to establish one's position in the middle of the ocean and without the sight of land, like measuring the, the angle of this, the sun with respect to the horizon at noontime, to establish north-south distance or latitude and using some declination table. So anyways, uh, the point is uh, he passed the exams. You had to pass formal examinations and he became a pilot, which was the highest post that somebody like Martin could ever aspire to. There were most, uh, as you may know, most of the pilots and commanders uh, at the time in the 16th century were white Europeans and so it was only a few extraordinary people of color. Uh, Lope Martin was was not the only one. There were some other pilots of color, but he was. There were so few as to still stand out. Right. And he was able to break through that through that. So rank. he overcame a lot of adversity. He kind of rises to the top of his field. He gets chosen to be. Is he one of uh, the four navigators who uh, you know navigator each ship uh, to go out on this expedition? Is that right? Uh, there, there were six pilots. The idea was the uh, the original intention was to get two pilots per ship, uh, because as the Spanish authorities explained very tersely, 
one pilot may be missing in the course of this expedition, anticipating the <laughs> enormous loss of life that, that they expected. But uh, in spite of their best efforts, they could not secure eight excellent pilots, only six, and Martin was one of them. Okay, so despite all this adversity, he rises to the top of his field. He gets chosen to be one of the pilots. And so give us the thumbnail sketch of how this expedition happens, how it plays out. So the very bare minimum is that they depart from Navidad. The idea is to go straight to the Philippines to establish a Spanish outpost there. And then one of the ships would attempt their return, the elusive return voyage, presumably one of the two largest ships. But just merely 10 days after departing from Navidad, there is a storm and the ship that is piloted by Martin, a ship called the San Lucas, loses sight of the other three ships that remain together. The San Lucas was by far the smallest of the four ships and Martin was the only pilot aboard. Uh, as we said, some of the other ships had two pilots. This one only had Martin. And even though the, the idea was to go straight to the Philippines, they knew about a couple of islands on the way in Micronesia. And the plan was, should one of the, because I mean, ships at that time did not have GPSs or did not have a telecommunication. So should one of those get uh, get separated, then the idea was that they would go straight to one of these islands and wait for the rest of the fleet to catch up. And this is what Martin did, but it was extremely difficult to uh, to come together. And in fact, the separation became permanent all the way to the Philippines. And so what happened was the uh, San Lucas... Uh, made every effort to try to connect with the other three ships. They navigated through the middle of the uh, Philippines uh, and they came close to actually establishing contact with the other three because they actually went to to the place that where the Spanish had been before since the time of Magellan. Um, and uh, however, they missed each other by a, f by a few days. And so the people aboard the San Lucas, Martin and the, the Spanish commander, the Spanish uh, captain of the ship, faced the terrible situation of either continuing to search to try to find the other ships but consume their dwindling provisions while doing that, or they could try to surrender to the uh, in the Spice Islands to the where the Portuguese had established some forts, so basically to give up and hoped that the Portuguese would take them back to Europe by, by the long way, by way of India and Africa. Or uh, they could attempt their return by themselves, even though this was the smallest ship and a ship that was not supposed to be attempting their return. Instead, in, you know, the, the idea was that one of the two largest ships would be attempting their return. And this is what they did. Yeah, so, so how long were they there? How long were they kind of trying to connect with the other Spanish ships and uh, until they decided, okay, let's, let's take the next step? They, they stopped for a month to make repairs in the southernmost island of the Philippines, Mindanao, uh, waiting to see if the other ships would show up. And then they sailed for three weeks, two or three weeks, right through the middle of the archipelago looking for the other ships and they couldn't, they couldn't find it. So, you know, uh, close to two months, they were wow. uh, looking for the, for the other ships. So they're faced with a decision. Okay. Our, our supplies are dwindling. Are we just going to stay here? We're going to try to go back home the, the other way, the, the normal way, or are we going to try to go back 
trying to find this Vuelta, this return trip over the Pacific, and they decide they're going to they're gonna go for it. They're going to try to head back over the Pacific. Exactly. You know, it, it was a decision that was a little bit forced on them because by the time they reached the end of the archipelago, it was a, a, a time when there was very strong currents and the currents were taking them away from the land. And so we have a remarkable document that, uh, where the captain asks the pilot, uh, asks Lope Martin, so you, we need to decide what we're, what we're going to do, whether we are going to go to the Spice Islands and surrender to the Portuguese, or should we try the Vuelta? And we have the actual words of Lope Martin saying that I think we should try the Vuelta because of certain... I mean, we know that he solved the riddle of how to navigate. I mean, part of the problem was that, I mean, Martin knew that they needed to go way north in order to catch the other side of the gyre, as we were uh, explaining this this vast circle of currents and winds. Uh, but he also was aware of a second uh, key, which was this is this is all happening in the spring. And this region is still dominated by the monsoon. So there is a 180 degree change in the direction of the winds and the currents in this part of the world. And so in the early spring, there is a shift that is favorable to them. And he and Lope Martin clearly understood that this is the best time for us to try to make headway. Uh, And if we can go north enough, he says that we will find favorable winds and currents that will take us back home. And so he's able to persuade the captain to attempt this crazy thing on a souped up boat (laughs) with basically eight casks of water that are not full to the top and with uh, very minimal amounts of food for a voyage of these of these uh, of this scope. That's incredible. And so he was able to kind of bring together information that the other the seven failed previous attempts. How how did he these other ships never made it back. So how did he how was he able to learn from their mistakes? They well, I mean that's a very speculative and difficult uh, question to answer for sure. Uh one possibility is that he may have learned about these seasonal shift in the in the winds from local navigators we know that they came in contact with filipino navigators who would have been well versed in this uh that is one possibility the other possibility is that he had talked to uh european navigators at the start of the expedition in navidad or perhaps in mexico city uh we know that the guiding spirit of this whole fleet was another uh, no less extraordinary uh, individual. He was a cosmographer who had uh, been apprenticed to some of the survivors of Magellan's expedition, and he had participated four decades earlier in another uh, life-or-death expedition across the Pacific, and you know it had not succeeded. He had remained stranded in Southeast Asia for eight years, um, but he survived, and during those eight years, he would have learned uh, about the seasonal pattern of the winds and the currents, and uh, and you know, and four decades later, he, he was recruited for this elite expedition, and so obviously, it's uh, it's quite conceivable that he may have talked to the other pilots in the fleet, and he may have imparted some of his information that Martin um, already knew even before arriving to the Philippines. Right. Okay. So they decide, like, we're going to go for it. We're going to try to go back. And so what happens next? So they, uh, 
they go north. Uh, they their idea their initial idea was that they would try to hit Japan, and they couldn't do it. Uh, the uh, the currents and the winds were such that it took the San Lucas into the immensity of the Pacific rather than a straight up climb that would have taken them to Japan. Then they tried to find the coast of China, but they were still navigating too far, you know, too deep into the ocean to, to, to do that. And so they had no other recourse but to try to continue on until hitting the coast of the Americas. But they suffered enormously uh, during the passage. They were basically sailing some 10 degrees of latitude to the south of the Aleutian Islands, which is this necklace of islands between Russia and Alaska. So they experienced the coldest summer ever. Uh, so they describe how they had, I mean, they were from the tropical environment in the Philippines. And in fact, they had lost nearly all, all their clothes because at one stop they had tried to wash their clothes and the party that was washing the clothes was suddenly attacked by uh, by islanders and they had to abandon the clothes and run for their lives. And so they had very few clothes mm -hmm. on them. So they were uh, extremely exposed to the elements at that point. So that was one major problem, the, uh, the cold. But perhaps the worst and somewhat unexpected is that there was a plague of rats in the, aboard the, the ship. And the only water available aboard the ship was in these eight casks of water. And only five of them contained water at the time. They, they only were sailing with five casks of water. And so what the, what the rats did was they started gnawing on some of the casks mm. in order to get access to the water. And uh, at one point, they spilled the contents of two of the casks, two of the five remaining casks, by way of gnawing them. And so the crew members had to post a four-man guard 24 hours. Day and night, they had to uh, light fires at night in order to guard the casks, and they kept killing 10, 20, 15 rats desperately trying to attack the casks in order to get access to the only water available. Unbelievable. Because that's like that you're talking life and death there. Like they they just they wouldn't survive if they if they can't protect that Absolutely. water. Absolutely. I mean, it, the, at that point, the amount of water per person was incredibly low. Um, so and of course, they didn't know exactly how long the voyage would last. And in fact, getting back to America uh, takes longer, just to give you a sense. Typically, going from the Americas, from the coast of Mexico to, to Philippines, it would take three months, sometimes four months. Getting back uh, usually took longer. It could take up to six or seven months. In this case, it just took almost four months. But still, they didn't know at the time, because this was the first time it was ever done, they didn't know how long that would take. Right. That's incredible. So it takes them all those many months to get back. And they finally, they do get back. Where do they end up landing? Do they end up landing back at Navidad? They did. Uh, they reached back at Navidad after a near shipwreck. Uh, you know, they basically limped along. Uh, they had severe signs of scurvy, lack of vitamin C, but they were received like heroes. They, uh, they were hailed as heroes, the beginning of a new era in which Mexico would become the crossroads between East and West. It would start this trade with uh, Asia, all these precious spices, all these Chinese um, uh, porcelain and Chinese silk, uh, etc. So, so they were uh, celebrated. But two months later, 
the flagship in the expedition also return, uh, unbeknown to, uh, to all of this. And representatives from the fleet commander who had the fleet commander had remained in the Philippines to establish this Spanish outpost, as we had said at the beginning, accusing Lope Martin and the captain of the San Lucas of abandoning the expedition when the weather was good and for no, for no good reason. So basically accusing them of treason. And so what had been a great celebration just a f- you know, two months earlier turned into a judicial proceeding, which is how we know about many of the details of this whole expedition to begin with. And so, so he goes from becoming a hero to becoming uh, kind of a criminal. What happens to him? He is repeatedly tried and he's acquitted of this charge. But nonetheless, he is required to become the lead pilot of a follow-up expedition to the Philippines in order to resupply the Spanish base that they had established in the Philippines. Uh, And this was a way to acquit him, but also to punish him, because the pilot knew full well that the moment he set foot in the Philippines, the fleet commander in the Philippines would hang him for abandoning because that was the charge to begin with. So, uh, so here we have this incredible pilot who had risen through the ranks, who had been the first to learn to sail the Pacific, basically to go there and return successfully, thus opening, so to speak, the Pacific in the same way that Columbus had opened the Atlantic with his uh, pioneering voyage of 1492. Uh, this was the same accomplishment, except that he was tainted and he was basically uh, repaid in this way. And moreover, this follow-up expedition would have a notary that would be carrying a sealed envelope in which uh, there was a letter telling the commander in the Philippines that Lope Martin should be hanged as a repayment for his services. Unbelievable. So does, does Martin actually go through with this trip? I mean, he didn't know that they had that letter, but he kind of assumed you know, it wouldn't come to a good end. He, uh, he did know the, uh, the contents of the sealed envelope were leaked and he learned about this. So here you have a pilot who had no reason to reach his destination, but somehow, instead of thinking of this as a death sentence, he increasingly viewed uh, this voyage as, a, as an opportunity. So he basically was given, in order to induce him to become the lead pilot, he was uh, allowed to choose his own crew. Uh, and so he chose allies, some of them Portuguese also, or of Portuguese ancestries, and he was given considerable power aboard the ship. So, uh, so what we have is a follow-up expedition in which Lope Martin somehow believed that he could persuade the captain of this follow-up expedition. And in fact, he said, look, they're going to kill me if I go there, but I can take you anywhere. I can take you to the coast of China. I could take <laughs> you to the, uh, to the Spice Islands. I could bring you back through the Strait of Magellan. You could become an incredibly wealthy individual. Um, And this is something that must have uh, crossed his mind because having a pilot of the caliber of Lope Martin and having a well-supplied ship could really turn a small group of men into incredibly wealthy individuals in just one voyage. So is that what they did? I mean, did they just abscond with the ship and went on their own way? No. uh, So basically, (laughs) the the captain was a, uh, a gruff 
Spaniard of very few words, and it became very clear to Martin that he was going to follow through with the original plan. And so Martin's only recourse was to, to get rid of him. And so he instigated a mutiny uh, that resulted in the loss of life of, the, of this captain. Then there was a follow-up mutiny. It's a very complicated story, a follow-up mutiny. Mm. And uh, in the end, uh, these, this one ship, this second, this follow-up expedition consisted of one ship, ended up stranded in uh, Micronesia, in one atoll in Micronesia, Ujelang, were um, after an, a mutiny a, and a counter-mutiny, uh, Lope Martin and 26 of his closest allies remained stranded while the rest of the ship continued on to the Philippines. Hmm. So it, how does the story of Lope Martin end? I mean, so he gets stranded on this atoll. Does he live the rest of his life basically there or in the area? What, what happens to him? Well, the trail goes cold after this, but I have some indirect information from subsequent expeditions. Uh, a subsequent expedition claims that they found uh, evidence of Martin and his men being in a different island uh, because they found some European artifacts uh, in that island. Uh, let's put this into context. We're talking about 26 sailors who are really well experienced. They are in possession of plenty of water, plenty of food, firearms. And we also know that there was an abandoned uh, Polynesian or Micronesian uh, vessel in this atoll that they had found. We know that from the sources. So it is quite possible that uh, that these 27 mariners were able to make a living there or where or move to a different island and made themselves at home, which I want to believe is a, a more fitting ending to the man who was the first to learn how to uh, sail the Pacific and was so unfairly accused of betraying the Spanish crown and uh, was sentenced to die uh, very, so unfairly. So I, I uh, you know, this, this indirect evidence suggests that he made a, a living in his chosen element um, and he may have lived there for many years. Mm. I mean, it's a fascinating uh, story. Why do you think the story of Lope Martin was, was, I mean, it seems like it was almost buried, almost lost to history. I mean, Columbus, everybody knows about Columbus, but no, you know, very few people have heard of him. Why do you think that is? Well, um, a couple of uh, reasons. First of all, the accomplishment of Martin and this fleet that found the Vuelta, the return voyage, was less an accomplishment of conquering lands or new kingdoms as it was a an accomplishment in knowledge. It was the connectedness of the five continents for the first time in history. It was the ability to go and come through the largest ocean on earth. So, uh, so that's, that's a more intangible accomplishment. So that's one reason, I think. But the, the second reason, of course, has to do with the controversial circumstances in which Lope Martin uh, made this incredible discovery. After all, he was accused of treason, and many historians ever since have deemed Lope Martin as piratical, as a troublemaker, uh, and so uh, that's one of the reasons, that's a very powerful reason why we have lost his name to history. The credit normally goes to this other, no less extraordinary mariner, the uh, uh, Andres de Urdaneta, the, the leader of the fleet that arrived 
two months later. He was nonetheless second. Uh, the first one uh, was Lope Martin. And so that's what I tried to do uh, in my book is try to undo these historical injustices. Right. I'm curious what led you to to researching this story in the first place. Was it something that you had heard about maybe, you know, as a child and wanted to see if it was true? Or were you doing research on another book that led you to this story? Yes, I was doing research on another book. And serendipitously, I uh, found a little little snippets of this story. I was blown away that the first man to ever cross the Pacific was a uh, uh, an Afro-Portuguese man, a mulatto, in the parlance of the day. Um, I also learned that he had been secretly condemned to, to death. And I found that is quite fascinating. And it's quite revealing of the, the harsh dealings and dealings of that era of early exploration. And so I knew that at some point down the line, I would have to get to the bottom of this story. And, uh, and that's the product, this, this book that just came out a couple of months ago. How difficult was it to find source material to kind of piece it all together? I mean, how long did it take and where did it take you? Did, did you have to go to Spain and to the Philippines? I mean, it sounds like it's a kind of a daunting task. It is. A, it was a fun, a daunting, but fun. I mean, I did have to go to <laughs> Spain and to the Philippines and to Guam, to Mexico and various parts in the United States to, to put it all together. Uh, it took me about seven years. Maybe the the hardest part about this was, A, finding enough information. I mean, this is a, a man of humble origins, and so finding information about such individuals in the 16th century is extremely difficult. So that was one problem. But the other problem was providing the context. The story really comes alive if you understand the stakes, just how difficult it is to conquer the Pacific, it was in the 16th century like going to the moon and just how extraordinary these individuals were. And so a great deal of the problem was about just providing the, the necessary context in order to understand the extraordinary story that was unfolding here. Your research focus is European exploration and colonization of the Americas and the pioneering voyages across the Pacific, among other things. What drew you to, to that field? I guess it's a, it's a common path for historians. I always tend to go back, further back, the, the more I get into my career. So I started out uh, writing about the 19th century, but then you start wondering, okay, so, but how do we get here? So I jump back all the way to the 16th century. And that's what I've been uh, writing in the last few years. But I didn't start out as a 16th century person. I, I find these stories of early contact uh, between Europeans and Native Americans quite fascinating. And, uh, and that era, I find the grandest era for good and bad. I mean, it was the grandest era of slavery uh, the grandest era of discovery, of incredible scientific attainment, and also incredible savagery. Mm, mm. I, I think I read someplace that you uh, you sail as well. So you, 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 it seems like you must appreciate what these sailors went through. Right. I mean, so I, I have a small sailboat, in, and I sail in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I learned, I learned very quickly that you can run into, into trouble very quickly, and conditions are so variable. So I could only imagine what a voyage of this scope would have entailed, um, you know, not knowing what you're going to face, et cetera. So, so I think my, my experience as a sailor kept me in good stead in the writing of this book and was absolutely essential. I think I would have written a very different book 
had I not known a little bit about sailing myself. Right. Well, you know, this has been really great. I feel like I feel like some Hollywood director might be knocking on your door sometime soon to turn this story of Lope Martin into a feature film. I mean, it has all the makings of a great story, and it and it actually really happened. I how wholeheartedly agree with you. I hope you are right. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Andres Resendez is professor of history at UC Davis and author of Conquering the Pacific, An Unknown Mariner, and the Final Great Voyage of the Age of Discovery. His previous book, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the 2017 Bancroft Prize. You can find out more about his work on our website, ucdavis.edu slash podcast. And if you like the backdrop, check out our other UC Davis podcast, Unfold. It breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research, like why songs get stuck in your head, or what real-world engineering concepts you can learn from comic books. Join public radio veteran and host Amy Quinton and co-host Kat Curlin for Unfold. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.